Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today our guest is Tori Baker. And Tori, it's been a long time, a super long time, but I'm really excited to catch up with you after so many years. How are you doing? I'm, you know, doing well, as well as could be expected, I suppose, in these unusual times. <laughs> yeah, unusual is the understatement of the decade, I think, <laughs> it <might be. laughs> when it comes to these crazy times that you're in. What is it that you're working on these days, and has that been impacted at all by COVID? Yeah, so I'm the CEO of a film nonprofit named Salt Lake Film Society. We operate two art house cinemas. So the the what we call the theatrical exhibition industry is movies, essentially, in a movie house. We are mission-based, but the theatrical exhibition industry has been closed since March, and Hollywood is not releasing films and ever releasing films on, uh, you know, direct to video. So the industry is changing rapidly. So I've been working on some uh, innovation in our nonprofit to try and see how we can adjust and adapt to the new changing times and possibly what it will mean for individuals to go to the movie in the future. So keeping very, very busy. (laughs) I can imagine. Well, I want to hear about these innovations because I do miss going to the movies. I mean, sometimes it's nice to just sit home and watch something, but uh, on other occasions, it's nice to be with other people and have that experience together. So What are some of the innovations you are currently considering? Well, we really feel like, you know, the communal experience of the big screen experience is extremely important to the art form of cinema. So we have committed as an organization to exhibiting, creating and preserving that big screen experience. We just aren't sure when it's going to be able to come back in the same way that it may be felt familiar to us in the past. So some of the innovations we're looking at right now are looking at how can we uh, merge or combine the digital visual screen along with the big screen experience with a nonprofit. That's happening on a national level. So some of the tech that we're developing at the Salt Lake Film Society to help virtual screens be at, for instance, the Broadway or the Tower, in our case here in Salt Lake City, is giving us the ability to take that nationwide and help other art houses in America as well. So we're working primarily in a tech space that is very, very new for us. And um, although it's not new for us to conceive of our art form happening online, because that's, of course, been the disruption since Netflix came into play many years ago. Um, So some of the other art forms in the city, like the ballet, the opera, the legacy arts, theater, those art forms, because they're so much about being in person, Uh, transitioning to and and pivoting to online is a very different process for them. So I think we're a little bit luckier in that sense. So, Well, I guess Disney can do it with Hamilton, but I think that uh, it might be a little bit more difficult for local productions to find their way online. But who knows? Hopefully they can find some innovations and make something happen too. Yeah. To get through the gap, at least, if not start to change what that looks like in the future, because there will be communal experiences in the future. And we're committed to preserving that big screen experience when it's appropriate. But uh, there is going to be a big gap between now and then on what we can do to make that kind of a a viable business model as well to underwrite the nonprofit. Well, yeah, I hope that the gap can be shortened by us all heeding our mandates to wear the masks and socially distance so that we can get the numbers under control and then take a more perhaps localized 
surgical approach to to combating this crazy disease and man fingers crossed they come up with a vaccine here soon so we can all get back to our communal ways yes exactly it's very hard as human beings that you know movies are very much the campfire for us you know everybody comes around the campfire tells a story you experience it together it's it's a very different experience than sitting on your couch you can absorb that story but you don't you know, when everybody in the auditorium is crying at the same time or awing at the same time, that's a very different human experience that's kind of hardwired into us. So, um, so people are missing that and, and it's affecting our mental wellness as well as, you know, how we communicate with each other and network. And so it's really important that the arts has a way and a pathway back and some things will be innovated and innovative you know, through those arts in this time, but, but the support of the arts is ever important right now. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I'm glad that you are on here to help share that message with everyone. I like this idea of, uh, or this phrase, absorb the story. So here we are. <laughs> we're, we're telling stories. That's the whole idea behind this podcast is to reminisce about Salt Lake 2002. And we're giving everybody an opportunity to share their stories. So thank you very much for agreeing to share yours. Sure. And speaking of your story, why don't we start from the beginning? Tori, um, what were you doing before you joined the Salt Lake Organizing Committee? And just how did you find yourself involved in the games? Well, I was uh, very embroiled in film. I was working for the Sundance Institute. So I was living up on the mountain uh, at the Sundance Resort and doing the summer labs when the opportunity arose for this position. Uh, Jenny Wilson, who ended up being the manager of the retention department, had contacted me. I'd worked for her previously on some political campaigns as a fundraiser. So uh, it was an interesting transition because I've been, I've been, you know, very much a service worker for the arts and the idea of moving into the sports realm was I was a little worried about maybe what that would be like. Would you have the Monday blues? Would you not be engaged? Would you not have passion for it? Um, So there was a little bit of, you know, trepidation on my part in terms of whether or not to move on from Sundance, which I had worked for for many years and was, you know, starting to progress career-wise in as well. But the opportunity just seemed like once in a lifetime. So I took the leap. And you leapt into the deep end of the pool. When did you actually (laughs) take the leap and dive in? Uh, I took the leap in early 2000. So uh, it would have been, you know, I think I got the job offer in uh, 1999, but it would have been early 2000. And what was your role? So I, my official role was in the volunteer retention department, which I actually have to give Ed a lot of credit, Ed Einan, for having that department to begin with. I felt like it was a very innovative role within the human resources. And that was a department that was designed to ensure that, you know, six days into the games, volunteers standing in the snow weren't going to quit on you because they were too cold and not happy. So I thought that was a real great innovation and felt like a service place. Um, There were only three of us and my role was a coordinator level in that department. And the Sundance experience I'm sure was quite helpful because Sundance uses volunteers as well. And and so what kind of volunteer experience did you bring from Sundance that you were able to apply there in the Salt Lake Organizing Committee? 
Well, I think one thing that the creative sector in general, if you work in the arts, provides any organization is just the the open-minded thinking about how to tackle problem solving. And so we brought a lot of um, experience working directly with volunteers, but also a lot of grit. Um, you know, I, I mean, my role in the in the volunteer trainings, which were huge, they were they happened throughout the course of the summer and had Donny Osmond and all sorts of guests coming, which I never even saw those trainings because I was out in the parking lot <laughs> and I was shuffling cars around to get them into a high school auditorium fast enough that they could have the training. So so building a lot of grit um, by working with people that are willing to just step up to the plate to give. And, and give their service, um, whether they're they're shuffling cars or lugging a pallet full of things to shuffle those cars, um, is is really kind of I think what we brought to the table. Um, that led later to us. I was also the deputy general manager of the team processing center, which handed out all the uniforms and all the the medals and and volunteer swag and the volunteer tickets for the opening and. Um, games, uh, opening ceremony. And so, so I think that grit takes you along that kind of path. I want to go to the team 2002 processing center in a moment. A few weeks ago, we had Deirdre on Deirdre Morrissey and she talked about her experiences out there, but I want to come back to retention first. Mm -hmm. Uh, we've had a lot of people and we, and we know because we were involved, but we've had a lot of people talk about how incredible the volunteers were. And there's a great culture of volunteerism here in the state of Utah. That being said, you can't take it for granted that they'll always show up and do everything all the time. So you have this retention program. And what were some of the innovative things that you did to keep the volunteers motivated throughout their journey? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there were two components to that. And that was the pre-games component and then the games component, right? So the pre-game component was about recruitment and engagement. And we would have these trailblazing parties, we called them, and that would allow people to, to get to know one another and feel like they were part of an intimate and exclusive group of people that were going to be very special when the games did arrive. You were able to do those in the summer and when the weather was nice, as well as the volunteer training. Um, I can't speak to the volunteer training very much. I'm sure that was a huge pre-games component as well, in terms of the commitment level and the and the experience level that kind of made people feel like, you know, I'm, I'm in this for the long haul. Um, but when it came to the retention component during the games, um, one of the great innovations was the uh, volunteer playbook. So we created in the department this uh, multi-page playbook that allowed volunteers to track progress as opposed to just saying, we're going to thank you at the end of the games or we're going to give you this medal at the end and this really cool cool swag um, and we're going to give you these great uniforms at the outset. Um, there was this, this continual check-in progress with the playbook and it allowed volunteers to get a stamp for certain behaviors and certain certain things that they did and that kind of progressed them along and then they could turn that in for certain rewards. So I think that progressive program was really important to the retention because it didn't feel like a beginning and an end, but it, it, it continued throughout the games. Well, one of the things I thought was a, a lot of fun for the volunteers, it certainly was for me as a paid staff person, was 
volunteers and staff got to see the rehearsal, right? The dress rehearsal for the ceremonies, for the opening ceremony of the games, which I think is a great retention idea. Were you able to go to the opening ceremony rehearsal with the volunteers? Yeah, yeah, I was. And it's, it is an, it is an amazing tool. It is at the beginning. So it is, it, there is risk there, you know, that people would take their, their soup and then head out the door or something. But, um, it was amazing. That was super fun. Um, and some of the interesting logistics behind how to make that happen are, are, are so behind the scenes that people probably never knew. Ed had a very important vision that volunteers could sit by their family or their friends if they were also volunteering. And so if you look at having 30,000 volunteers and you say, okay, how do we distribute those opening rehearsal tickets in a way that John Smith can sit by his friend who we don't even know his friend's name yet. There was a really, a really interesting moment in our department where we had to come together and problem solve. How could people do that in a ticketing way? And of course, you know, in 2002, you'd say now looking in on it, people might be thinking, oh yeah, you handle that with a a cool POS system or something online and ticketing and everything. But you got to remember this was you know, 2000 that we were solving this problem. So um, we ended up actually doing that through the team 2002 processing center checkout system so that people could bring what was already a voucher essentially for a place at opening ceremony and combine it with other vouchers so that then you got your actual tickets and those were in the, in the chronological order that would allow you to sit together. So, um, but that was, that was a huge challenge for our department. All right, let's talk about the Team 2002 Processing Center. I always chuckle with the name, particularly these days with COVID. We've heard a lot of uh, news about COVID spreading in meatpacking facilities. And I always thought this name, Team 2002 <laughs> Processing Center, sounded like a meatpacking place, like <laughs> like we're processing beef or something there. But, but that's not what we were doing. Uh, people had to be accredited. They had to receive that credential and they had to receive their uniform in order to do their work. So when did you start getting involved in the Team 2002 Processing Center? Well, what's interesting about getting involved with the Processing Center is that, you know, most people had their their job at SLOC and then they had their games assignment and their games assignment was like, I didn't learn this till later, but their games assignment was like super fun, super awesome, you know, go up on the hill, whatever. Um, And it was during that games period. But in order to process uniforms and, you know, all the bus drivers and all the people that needed to work during that two or 10 day, two week period, we had to be open a month and a half prior to that, as well as a month and a half prior post Paralympic Games. So our quote unquote, you know, games assignment (laughs) was actually more than two months long. So of all the games assignments, it it took a lot more consistency of management to try to figure out how to make sure that those processes were working well. I got, uh, uh, I'm not quite sure when I got reassigned to it, but I, but I, I'm sure it was a month or two before we actually opened the team processing center. So I was probably simultaneously doing both jobs for a little bit. Once the processing center opened, that was full-time transition. So we were there full time, usually nights. Most people were checking out uh, uniforms and and getting those volunteer tickets and such and their playbooks and and whatnot 
in the evenings. I, you know, my one of my favorite things that happened there was we had to order 200 McDonald's hamburgers for the bus drivers that arrived to get their their uh, um, uniforms because something was happening with check-in that we weren't able to facilitate everybody fast enough and they were in line so long. <laughs> People were going to be so miserable that we just called McDonald's and said, how fast can you do 200 hamburgers? And we brought them in and passed them out and everybody was thrilled and took away kind of the pain of the standing in line. <laughs> McDonald's, the best medicine. There you yeah. go. <laughs> so tell me about the challenge of getting thousands and thousands of people through the Team 2002 Processing Center. I mean, it would be a nightmare if you had 20,000 people show up on the same day. So how did you schedule things so you didn't have you know, huge groups of people all coming in at the same time, you try to maybe distribute it a little bit more evenly. Well, it's a little bit of a puzzle between what uniforms are in and what uniforms, if you if you recall, for every volunteer role, medical, you would have a particular color. And then if you were in the field, you would have a particular color. If you were a general volunteer, you would have a particular color on your on your uniform and your and your jackets. So so it was also it wasn't just about coordinating people coming through. It's about coordinating what inventory do you have in at what given time. So, um, so those usually went by function. So you'd have all the medical personnel checking in on the same week or days or nights or whatever that schedule looked like. And then all the bus drivers, the same nights and all the, all the field personnel, the same nights and all. And so that would allow us to, um, have the inventory ready for one, because you always had to have that staged and ready and mitigate the lines as well. The lines were long. I mean, they, they got long in, um, some nights and nothing as bad as the McDonald's night, but but um, but the process itself was pretty expedient. You know, you had to go through and and just pull your size and and it, it's sort of a, a a line. You know, one person's giving you jackets, one person's giving you your ski pants. You know, um, I was primarily helping um, because just because you're the deputy general manager, I was on the floor all the time in the in the thick of it, you know, we traded off shifts. So Deirdre would be working one night, I'd work the other and Lauren would work the other. And whatever night we were on, you're, you're doing everything that anybody else volunteering at that, that processing center or working at it is doing. And, and I primarily helped make sure that we weren't getting out of order with those volunteer retention tickets for that openings, that opening rehearsal, because they're there. That was such a delicate process that it would be very easy to get it to a point where you, you got to the end of the process and then nobody could sit together. So, um, you know, that, that was more where I spent most of my efforts rather than within the jackets or the uniforms. What would happen if someone got a uniform that ended up being the wrong size or they got the wrong piece of the uniform or something? How did you resolve those kinds of issues? Well, it depended. It depended on the access to other sizes, right? So, uh, you know, in the instances of where you'd run out of one particular size, there might not have been any other inventory. And so those individuals, I'm not sure what they did when they were on the field, but we we were not able to solve that problem for them and get another jacket. Sometimes we were able to get a different kind of jacket that wouldn't be the same. Um, 
for the general volunteers in the purple um, and the field volunteers in the green, I don't require recall having really any challenges in those realms in terms of inventory. But there were there were probably a handful of people who who didn't get exactly what they needed and wanted out of the uniform process. But um, some of the other stuff was more flexible. Black ski pants by marker. If you can, you know, could you can possibly wear an alternative to that. So, so it's, it's easier to, to tell somebody that you're sorry, you can't get them the things that they need, but you know, uh, clearly a purple, you know, <laughs> Olympic coat is not something that you can go out and get a replacement for. Um, so that was more challenging if there were issues there. I still see people walking around with these coats on occasionally. Yeah, I didn't keep 20, mine. Yeah, like <laughs> and 18 I years I later, I still see people yeah. wearing them. It's so yeah. crazy. I uh, I gave mine to my to my mom, and then and then a while, years later, I asked, "Do you still have that?" And she couldn't she couldn't find where it ended up. But um, you know, when you're in the when you're working in the team processing center, and you're you're absorbed in that brand, if you will, 100% of the time. The last thing I wanted after it was over was to save any keepsakes of uniforms because I was up to my neck in them for two and a half months. And so, um, you know, you just you just don't see your nostalgia that will build later. <laughs> so a few regrets not having it. But <laughs> well, I totally get it. Swimming in mountain shadow for a few months. Yeah, that would probably yeah. put anyone off. You <laughs> yeah. mentioned that it, the, the, the Team 2002 Processing Center was open for an extended period of time. And it wasn't just paid staff working there, but volunteers as well. And most volunteers were working games time roles where they work a couple of weeks and then that was it. But for your volunteers, they may have to work a longer period of time. So what were some of the things that you needed to do to to keep those volunteers motivated and and happy? I mean, well, they they were part of the playbook program as well. So they were able to kind of progress along that. And um, they would get some early access to sort of the fire, the fire sales and things like that, if they would make it to the end so that, you know, when everybody's selling off the weird things that you never, that you never think of when you think of the games, like you could get a barbecue or a love sack or whatever, you know, something weird that was bought for maybe uh, the village or, you know, that, you know, we were immersed in the clearly in uniforms and, and medals and stuff for the, for the volunteers. But, but when all that stuff then hit our, hit our center after they were able to get a little early access to those fire sales and, and inventory liquidations. Um, and, you know, we just manage them uh, as volunteers. So sometimes it's, you know, running and grabbing food. We had a, a great opening um, uh, opening press conference that Ed and Deirdre did that, you know, that I managed all the food and the logistics for, and they were all invited to that. And so just an engagement, really constant engagement. What was the largest uniform distributed? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know, but I think there's a lot of X's behind it. <laughs> uh, I I want to say triple X might have been the largest we win, actually, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I seem to remember because um, I had to help program the point of sale system out there. And Darren was saying, well, we got to put in all these ranges of sizes. And mm -hmm. he had me put in values all the way up to 8XL. It's possible. I don't know that I ever saw it because I was so embroiled in tickets, but I it, it is possible. 
I mean, that's 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 a substantial uniform, I have to say. My guess is we had like a couple of those in there, you know, like uh, that's because by the time people come and check out, you know, if if you were an 8XL and you missed getting the 8XLs that we ordered, those are the those are unfortunately the individuals that we would have to be like, we got to find alternatives. But um, but yeah, I, I can't remember, honestly, but that that is possible. You go on distributing all of these uniforms and credentials there in the Team 2002 Processing Center. Does it slow down at all during games time? Or are you having Paralympic people coming in during the Olympic Games? Were you able to get any kind of a breather at all? I don't really recall a breather there. I imagine there was probably a few, few you know, little tiny transitioning few days between when the Olympics started and the Paralympics started to check in for, for uniforms. Um, and I do recall having some free time to go to a couple of things. So we had tickets we, uh, to the, uh, to the Apollo, uh, when he won uh, Apollo Antonon, when he won the gold medal, we had tickets to that short track. We went to curling and we went to hockey. And so I had enough to maneuver the schedule. So, so even the Paralympics is a big scale down in terms of volume and, and what you're trying to check out and, and manage. Plus you'd already been through all your lessons. <laughs> You've learned everything you can learn. You've learned how to deal with somebody who's unhappy. You've learned how to how to manage the ticket flow. Um, so so processes really just become easier. Now you mentioned that it took a while to wind down after the games because you had all of this uh asset disposal as we call it. Yeah. <laughs> all, all of these things that had to be sold. And and so you know some people Right after the closing ceremonies, they're pretty much done and yep. uh, and they've started to move on to the rest of their lives. But but for you, uh, when did you finally finish up at the Team 2002 Processing Center and when did you finally finish working for the organizing committee? I recall being done at the top of June. Um, so we went quite a few months after trying to not only work on sort of all the sales that were going to happen for both public and internally at the Olympics for that those assets but um, also you know getting making sure that the the warehouse itself was emptied out and that the trucks had arrived and that you know we got to the last days and and there's odds and ends that it's like, okay, these didn't sell and these didn't go, what, you know, what do we do with this? We actually did end up taking some assets to the shelters and to other places to be, to be utilized. Um, so you end up with reams of paper or something odd that you're like, all right, what do we do with this now? Cause this is all over. So, um, but I do recall sort of starting to wind down by the top of summer. So you end your tenure at the Salt Lake Organizing Committee. What is next in the life of Tori Baker? Where do you go from there? <laughs> uh, well, you know, most immediately, we were all sort of still reeling from 9-11. And I think uh, the work and the environment of opportunity was different than it normally would have been, especially moving back into the field of the arts 
I think it was just challenging because people were under hiring and uh, larger companies. So if you looked at sort of Disney and sort of larger event companies were also on furlough at the time. And so the transition to finding work after was not easy. I ended up um, spending some short stints back with Sundance to fill some gaps, but um, sort of right quickly from from there, sort of trying to figure out what my career path was uh, leading up to you know, the executive director role at the Film Society uh, through some other nonprofits like Muscular Dystrophy Association and, um, you know, didn't have too big of a break like some people did. But thanks to Sundance filling that gap. And then when did you start with the Salt Lake Film Society? So I've been with the Salt Lake Film Society since 2004. And I originally came on as the executive director. And at the time, that nonprofit did have two venues, the Broadway and the Tower, but had been operating on a community-based mission-driven ethic with a 501c3 status and zero understanding or knowledge of what it was to do to run a nonprofit. (laughs) So uh, coming into that job, I, I actually had just left a huge nonprofit, the Muscular Dystrophy Association, which has a lot of resources and is national down to a very local and scrappy and you need to start every single program, including the volunteer program from scratch. So that was quite an interesting adventure to, to find myself in then. Any particular learnings from Salt Lake that helped you as you continued your work with Sundance or Muscular Dystrophy Association or the Salt Lake Film Society? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think the 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 greatest thing about, number one, that Monday Blues thing never happened. Um, the passion and love of what the Olympics is was so easy to be embraced by and to embrace. So that was... It was the job that when it does end, you know, and some people do have a lifetime of Olympics, um, but when it does end, you you sort of are sad that it is not a lifetime job. Um, but the, the biggest lessons, I think, that I took into the nonprofit field and in particular as a leader was the professional approach to execution. And I don't recall any person hired that I knew in the Olympics that didn't bring their A game every day and that didn't understand what was at stake if they didn't do that all the way up to men. And I think that the ethic and the culture surrounding the execution of quality and safety was Absolutely, after 9-11 especially, just paramount to framing your future leadership style so that you thought about those things and wanted to ever improve them. Because, you know, you go from that to a small nonprofit that's barely starting and this million dollar nonprofit and you've got to build all the programs, build all the volunteers, and you don't have that professionalism at your at your fingertips. You don't have that institutional knowledge. You don't have that brain power and you have to build it, but you can see it because you know what it looks like now and you can, you can reach for it. So I think that would be it. You talked about Deirdre and Jenny and Ed. I'm curious, what were some of the things that you 
learn from them or, you know, some of the stories that you had with them. I, I found that as I've done this podcast, probably one of the most important things for anyone working those games were, were the relationships. You know, it was it was working with really great people like you just mentioned, the A team or the people that brought their A game. So, you know, talk about some of those people that you work with that you learned some things from that have continued to help you as you've progressed in your professional career. Yeah, I mean, uh, so so Jenny was my direct boss and I had known her from the um, she's now the Salt Lake County mayor, which is fantastic. But I had known her from the uh, the political work that she was doing before. And she's always been an inspiration because Jenny was Jenny is always somebody who from a cultural place of where are women in the professional field always never saw a glass ceiling, even if there was one, and always was inspirational in that you can do whatever it is that you set your mind to and make that happen as a woman in a career field. So I always really appreciate her her collaboration and her mentorship. Um, Bronwyn was actually, and we didn't mention Bronwyn, but Bronwyn was actually um, our third uh, volunteer retention staff member. And she is, she was really the heart of the team. Um, She brought a lot of thoughtful heart to everything we did, whether it was problem solving or events and had a lot of passion for the Olympics and was really grounded and formed some really strong relationships with volunteers individually throughout the time. Um, You know, Deirdre is very, very adept at keeping everything organized and in order. And so it's always fun to watch people who have a little bit better analytical skills than I do. I'm very much on the artist spectrum side where I'm, you know, I'm in the outside of the box thinking and the creative side and jump feet first. And, and our personalities need the analyticals to, to ground us and tell us to slow down and bring us to reality. So I'd say, you know, that that's sort of a lot. Um, you know, I think from Ed, I didn't have a lot of person to person experience. I'm not sure Ed would even know uh, who I am. You know, I could tell him and I'm sure he'd be perfectly gracious, but, um, and he knew wandering by, of course, but um, we weren't, we weren't working together on the same level by any means. But what I saw was a lot of innovation, just in the fact that he thought about this department, how he thought about training and learning about human resources in general. Um, Jamie, who worked with Darren, Jamie Shaw, she she was an HR professional and and knew everything there was to know about HR. And for me, coming from the arts, this idea of what is human resources was just like, oh, that's that thing in a in a company that's over there in the corner, and you need to go there if you want your four hundred one k to be a certain way, right? <laughs> I didn't realize or recognize the the potency of a fully developed human resources team, which was such a great asset to the Olympics overall, all the way from the hiring that they wanted to do to find people jobs to the to the engagement to the the selection of the uniforms, those kind of things. I think just it, it it's such an important mechanism, and it's not just the place you go to check your four hundred one k. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, I love Jamie. Jamie and I have done a lot of work together since Salt Lake two thousand two, and 
hopefully I'll get her on this podcast one day. And I'm oh, glad you yeah. mentioned Bronwyn, Bronwyn Barnett. It's been forever yeah. since I've heard, I've heard Bronwyn's name, but I loved Bronwyn too. And, um, she, she had a, a wonderful East coast sensibility about her. And so thank she you for mentioning she, these. Yeah. Mentioning she's these in people. Arizona. So maybe check her, check her out as well. So. Yeah. I'll, if I can get her to be on here too, that'd be awesome. Um, well, I've taken a lot of your time before we get to our final segment, Tori, are there any other stories, experiences that you want to share before we get to our song? food and our favorite Olympic moment? Sure. Um, I, I really actually think that um, my, my most indelible memory is how Mitt handled 9-11 from a leadership standpoint. And I think I'm not high on the totem pole, didn't have direct access to those C-suite levels. And I felt touched at every moment through that process. And I, I've actually saved the initial email that he sent out to the entire staff. And then he had, he called together the meeting that we had in Gallivan Plaza. And I really feel like he exhibited the kind of leadership with such a, which sometimes I can't believe because it's a big team. And I manage a team of 34 people right now. And sometimes that feels like I can't get messaging to everybody, right? And the way that that was handled with sort of not only empathy, but trust and the ability to say that we don't know what's going to happen security-wise and if the games are even going to happen there for a minute. I never felt left out. I never felt like we didn't understand or know where leadership was coming from. So I think that is the thing that stands out the most, even absent, you know, the, the, the great gold medal stories and everything else that were, they're all phenomenal. Um, but, but that one thing I think resonates. You know, several people have mentioned that, that mid experience, mid addressing everyone, letting everybody know that it's going to be okay. We're going to deliver great games and it's going to have an impact. And it's funny, you mentioned the letter because a couple of months ago, we interviewed Lori Kuhn, Lori Morenci Kuhn, and she said this letter meant a lot. And she's like, I wish I had a copy of this letter. <laughs> She's in my book club. I will just give her a copy today. <laughs> so you've got to give Lori a copy. And, you know, if you can send on a copy to us, I, I, I would appreciate yeah. it. It's a hard copy because, again, everybody got to remember this is 2000, right? Like, <laughs> So I printed it off. It's in my folder. I will, I will dig it up and I will, I will scan it and, and get that out to you. And you can share it with everybody that you've talked with. Oh, perfect. That yeah. would be awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. Now let's get to our final segment, Tori. Uh, the first question I have for you is a music question. So while you were working at Slock, was there a particular music group or an artist or a song that just really resonated with you? It didn't have to be necessarily from that time period, but it was a song that just really impacted you. And whenever you hear it today, it takes your memory right back to Slock 2002. Well, for me, any Foo Fighter song takes my memories back to the Olympics and I didn't even go to the metals Plaza Foo Fighters thing, but the, but I, but I watched it and the energy 
And I was really into the Foo Fighters at the time, but they didn't make it there for other scheduling reasons. But I think that that energy that Dave Grohl brought at Metals Plaza with the smiles and it and and just the it feels very texturally like the Olympics and that spirit that you're experiencing in that moment. And so now when I hear Foo Fighter songs, even new ones, but now when I hear Foo Fighter songs, it makes me think of the Olympics. <laughs> so I mean if you have to pick one, I guess you could pick sort of uh I don't know, I think of a title. Um My Hero or you know um one of those, but, but I think that it was more even about the energy. All right. Foo Fighters. That's a great choice. We've had several people who have talked about being at that concert there at Metals Plaza because the men's snowboard, they swept the medals mm-hmm. that night. Dave Grohl's in there and he was just totally in the Olympic spirit. So yeah. I am super happy to throw some Foo Fighters on our Spotify <laughs> playlist. So we have a playlist, Salt Lake 2002 retrospective on pop on Spotify and all the songs that everybody's nominated are on that playlist. So you know, check that out. Okay, now let's go to the restaurants, a particular place that you like to go eat while mm-hmm. you were working there at the organizing committee. Yeah, and I, you know, I live farther out in the valley, and so I take the train every morning because they were generous enough to to have us uh, tele or commuting by train. And every Friday night, we would get off at the 7200 South train location and go to El Farrell. And El Farrell is still there. And I don't know if you do know this restaurant. I do. So it's a Mexican (laughs) restaurant that's in that kind of strip mall shopping center there, uh, 7200 South and State. 72 and State. And it's a pretty blighted area right now. And I always worry about them because we would go every single Friday night. And and, and El Farrell is family owned. And I would see the two owners there and um, always so gracious. And we sort of became regulars. And um, they, El Farrell is now run by their daughter. And so we just went again last week, and I would encourage anybody locally to go and support them during this COVID time, especially to support jobs and keeping things going. But that is the the Friday night, get off the train and go every Friday night. <laughs> All right. Excellent choice. El Ferro will add it to our map. So. On Great. the website, we have a map with pins in all the restaurants that everybody has talked about on the podcast. And so I agree when this uh, subsides, but, but even now, uh, people can go support those restaurants. I think it's a great, uh, great recommendation. And you've already given us a really, really special memory, the special memory there with Mitt. Um, and we typically do end on an, on an Olympic moment. Do you have a a goosebump moment to share with us, Tori? I do. It's actually a Paralympic moment. So we went um, to the opening rehearsal for the Paralympics as well, or it might have been the closing. You get them all mixed up, but I went to all of them. Um, it was raining. And a lot of the performers that night uh, wouldn't didn't want to come out because of the rain. And they were worried about sort of, you know, real worries like electrocution, but, um, you know, performing under those circumstances. And I remember that the crew on the ground brought out these tarps and said, Stevie Wonder's going to come out. And he, there's no way he's not coming out for all of you volunteers. Because a lot of times, I mean, sometimes the, you know, the star of the show doesn't even show up, you know, uh, for the, for the rehearsal. Um, 
And so volunteers kind of, ah, chump meat, you know, that's not the real night. TV's not here, the whole deal. You know, performers really kind of have an out. But he came out and he came out under that tarp and he didn't just start his program. He said, I can't believe it's raining. This is a wonderful, wonderful thing that's happening. And he made up this song on the spot that went, I'm raining, but my heart is full of sunshine. And he made the entire place sing it with him. And it, and then he went into his routine. And it was just so lovely, his spirit and, and that emotion and that gratitude he had for the volunteers. It was just awesome. I have never heard that story. I did go to the opening ceremony of the Paralympic Games and watch Stevie, you know, just like a champion for 45 minutes. Yeah. Pounding out tunes in this pouring rain, uh, which was very, very cold. And he was awesome. He's one of my favorite artists. But I had not heard that story of the rehearsal. So, Tori, thank you so much for sharing that story. That's an awesome story. Yeah. It's, what's the, what's the awesome. quote again? What What was the line? I'm. It's raining, but my heart is full of sunshine. It's raining, but my heart is full of sunshine. Okay. That's a perfect way to cap off this conversation. <laughs> yeah. I feel full of sunshine. And it's not just because the weekend's fast approaching. Yeah. Tori, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Now, if, if listeners want to reconnect with you, if they want to learn more about the work you're doing with the Salt yeah. Lake Film Society, the innovations that you're doing there, or they just want to share memories of Salt Lake 2002, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, the best way, if they don't already know, uh, they can certainly go to the Salt Lake Film Society website and find my direct email. But I'm also present on LinkedIn as Tori A. Baker, because there's a lot of Tori Bakers on there. Um, and it just listed as CEO uh, Arts Leader. So uh, follow me there and uh, tap me on the shoulder. Perfect, Tori. Thank you so much. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you again soon. Tori, once again, thank you. Thank you so much. 